Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Special guest, Jim Douglas. If you take your Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 28, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, and you know, <clears throat> the last words of any loved one, anyone who is precious to us, is very important to us. Uh, some of you, no doubt, like myself, are in the second half of a century of life. And, and no doubt, some of you have had the, the displeasure of saying goodbye to loved ones that are really, really important to you. And I dare say, if we could hand you the mic this morning, that you would certainly remember those last words that that precious loved one said to you. Well, our text this morning is the last words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it was very, very precious to those to whom he was speaking. Um, the 11, and I would submit that uh, he was also speaking to us, to us. Um, and they carried out his last words. They didn't fool around with that. It was dear and precious to them as it should be to us. So let's just read the text, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. And uh, Roger, I won't read it from St. James, though I'd love to. Uh, A <laughs> few of us in here are, are old school. Uh, and that's not a bad thing. But verse 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What we have just read is the mission statement for all Christians. It is not merely the mission statement for pastors. It is not merely the mission statement for missionaries. It is not merely the mission statement for elders or deacons or those who hold offices in the body of Christ. It is the mission statement for all Christians. All. You see, many of you work for large corporations, and if you could get inside the corporate computers these days, you would find a mission statement. And that mission statement tells you for what purpose that business exists. And every good business nowadays makes certain that its employees know the mission statement. Well, what we've just read is a mission statement for all believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was Rudyard Kipling, the great writer, who late in his life said, for years now I've never left home without my six editorial friends. They are who, what, where, when, how, and why. If you pick up the Patriot News tomorrow or the Tamaqua Gazette and a, <laughs> and a reporter has done a piece, a story on any event, person, whatever activity, if he, if that, he or she does not answer those six editorial questions, they have violated the story. They have not 
fully covered the story. Those are really, really important. And any journalism student major will tell you that. Well, our text answers those six editorial questions. And we want to look at those one at a time, just briefly this morning. We are told here who is to be involved in fulfilling the Great Commission. Who? And that's found in verse 19a. NAS said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. King James says, go ye therefore. And actually in the environment of the text in Greek, the word is actually plural. It is second person plural. All of you or indeed respectively each of you go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So our Lord tells us who is to be involved in this. All are to be involved. Uh, There are no exceptions. There are no exemptions. There are no exclusions. No one is left out. Every last one of us is to be involved in whatever this command tells us to do. Everyone. And the strategy that the Savior left us is just that. All are to be involved. All. You know, we fought a war back in 92 called Desert Storm, and the commander-in-chief of the Allied forces was a guy by the name of Norman Schwarzkopf. How effective would Norman have been if the troops had sent Norman out alone to fight the war, and they stayed in the barracks or in the tents, supplied him with the best of weapons, supplied him with all the resources and the logistics that he needed, but they stayed in the tents and cheered him on. Go, Norman. Go, Norman. How effective would Norman have been, and how long would it have taken for Norman to have been totally wiped out? I think we know the answer to that. Well, what I've just described to you is the typical institutional church in America today and many other places in the world. We expect the leaders, the pastors and the elders and the deacons to do all the work of the ministry, all of the spiritual warfare, all of the, spare, uh, the, shedding of the, uh, the, the, the spreading of the gospel, all of those things of ministry while we sit comfortably in our padded seats and say, go pastor, go pastor, go pastor. Boy, it's quiet in here now. <laughs> I'm not guessing. I'm not guessing. And, 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 you know, he is a wise man, our pastor is, that he doesn't listen to those cheers and he doesn't listen to the jeers. That's great wisdom in any spiritual leader because the same crowd that cheers you on Palm Sunday will crucify you the following Friday. <laughs> it's been proven many, many times. He's experienced that. Wise man, doesn't listen to that. But God never intended for the pastors, the elders, the deacons, the leaders of the church to do all the work of the ministry. He never intended that. Absolutely, positively not. He intended for all to be involved. That's the Savior strategy. Now, what is Satan's subtle substitute at this point? Satan divided us into unbiblical categories called 
clergy and laity. Clergy is not a biblical term. It is not at all a biblical term. That's something we've made up, guys. Not at all. Laity is indeed a a biblical term. It just means people, but clergy is not a biblical term. You see, along came a man by the name of Constantine in in the end of the second century, the Roman emperor, and he actually gave us that division. Very biblical, isn't it? He gave us that division, clergy and laity. He convinced the clergy that they were the only ones trained enough, skilled enough, motivated enough to represent Jesus Christ. He convinced the laity that they weren't skilled enough, trained enough, motivated enough to represent Jesus Christ. Constantine believed that you were saved by baptism, so he marched his soldiers through rivers of water to baptize them, and he placed them over the church. Just read church history. It's there. And he gathered up all the Bibles, uh, and there was no open revelation for about a thousand years. It's called the Devil's Millennium. And the only Bible known to be in captivity was chained to an altar in a Roman Catholic church. He totally divided the body of Christ. And that's where that division came from. And the Lord was not pleased with that. Hold your place in Matthew 28. Look at Revelations chapter 2 just quickly. Revelations chapter 2. God had a word to say about that. Speaking to the Ephesians church, the church at Ephesus, Revelations 2.6, God had first of all told them in verse 2, I know your deeds, I know your steadfastness, your perseverance, Uh, I know that you're a separated people, you have tried those that claim to be apostles and are not and have found them false. Verse 3, he said, I know about your suffering. You're suffering, you're perseverance, and you haven't grown weary for my name's sake. So they were serving, steadfast, separated, suffering. And he said, but I have one thing against you. I have one thing against you. You have done all of this. You've lost your first love, and that's a problem. That's a problem. Some of the other churches he wrote to in Revelations had accepted the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans, Nikon, where we get our word Nike from, simply means means conqueror or overcomer. And the conquerors in that day were the Roman Empire. And the head of that Roman Empire was a guy by the name of Constantine who gave us that division of the church. See, there's, there's, there's nothing new under the sun. This happened that long ago. And yet we adopted that strategy. And Constantine divided the church along what is known as the ladder of dedication. Okay, at the top of that ladder, you have the missionary. Under the missionary, you have the pastor. Under the pastor, you have the elders and deacons. And then way down at the bottom of that ladder, you have the, low, the lowly layperson. And these guys at the top are supposed to do all the work of the ministry, and the layperson is is simply to fund that work and run our way back and forth to church three or four times a week and not get involved and cheer him on. 
That was never the model that Jesus left us. Never the model. He expected all to be involved, each and every follower of his. And indeed, around the world this morning, around the world this morning, there are people that are dying and on their way to hell every second that ticks off the clock because all of God's people were not involved. Within 50 years of the death of Christ and resurrection of Christ in the first century, there was a mushrooming, growing Christian community in every major Roman population center. Why? Why was it that way? Because the church got involved. Turn to Acts. I want to show you this. In Acts chapter 1, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, You'll be witnesses to me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. So simultaneously, he outlined where our sphere of influence as Christians is to be. Simultaneously, in all those areas. And then in Acts chapter 2, Peter preached a sermon at Pentecost. And if you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 41, it tells us that 3,000 souls were added, note the word added, to the church that day. 3,000 souls. In verse 42, it says, They continued devoting themselves, those who were saved, continued devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine and teaching. In other words, they were discipled. They were discipled. In fact, that's the actual root form of the word teaching, indeed, is discipled. And look at verse 47. So they were praising the Lord, having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number, note the word added, Day by day, who were being saved. Now turn to Acts 4.4. 4. The church continues to grow. Many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Okay, so the adding machine is starting to break down here, because in that day they only counted the men. They didn't count the women and children. So we don't really know how many is represented there. But the adding machine is starting to break down. God's strategy is multiplication, but he started out on the frontier with addition and turned those additions into multipliers. And that's the same thing he wants to do with us today. We're to be multipliers. Turn to Acts chapter 5, verse 14. Acts 5, 14. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their numbers. So again, the adding machine has started to break down. Now they can't count those numbers that God is bringing into the faith on a daily basis. Look at Acts 6 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint rose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. You see, anytime you have great numbers coming, anytime you have multiplication that starts, you're also going to have some murmuring. Because everybody's a problem of one type or another. 
<laughs> Everyone, isn't that right? Aren't you a problem of some type? I am. That's <laughs> just the nature of, of, of fallen humanity. We're all a problem of some type. And here, the problem was that, that the, the minority were saying that their widows and, and folks were not being ministered to, so they chose deacons to do that while the apostles devoted themselves to prayer and the teaching of the Word. And you've heard our pastor speak about that many, many times. Many, many times. Look at verse 7. And the Word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase. And you can't see this in an English translation, but that indeed is the Greek word for multiplied. So first there was addition. They were discipled. Now the disciples are starting to multiply. That is God's standard. Now look at chapter 9, or chapter 8, sorry, chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. This is the account of the stoning of Stephen. You see, God had already told the people in Acts 1-8 that there were going to be witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. But things were going well in Jerusalem. Man, the church was growing. You know, people coming. They started multiplying. So they got kind of comfortable there. You know, things were going real well. Had great preaching, great teaching. You know, the apostles were all there. And they were just going to hang out in Jerusalem. God took exception to that. He took great exception to that. Acts 8, 1 and 2. And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered. They were all scattered. Guess who sent the persecution, guys? The Lord did. The Lord sent that persecution. He had already told them how serious he was about them being his representatives in all four of those areas found in Acts 1-8. And they decided that they were just going to hang out in Jerusalem because things were going well. And God sent a persecution to get on with it. And he literally blew them out. That's what the Greek text says. And they were scattered like seeds. The word is diaspora. We get our word spores. They were blown out like seeds throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Don't miss this, except the apostles. God scattered the people and the preachers were left at home. You see, the preacher's job is not to do all the work of the ministry. Ephesians 4 says his job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And if he fails to do that, then he has missed his calling. I don't care how well he preaches because God says that's what his job description is, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So here, the preachers were left at home and the people were scattered. And if you research the book of Acts to the end, what you'll find is at least 33 different accounts of gospel presentation by those who were scattered. Not by the preachers, they were left at home. Oh yeah, you can find the the ministry of Peter and Paul there, but if you look real close, you can find those who were scattered, the laity, the laypersons, carrying the gospel message with them wherever they were scattered. And that's what overthrew the Roman Caesar. That's what turned the Roman world upside down, was those Christians going out because every single one was a carrier of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No exclusions. 
So who is to be involved in this? Who is to be involved in this? Go back to our text. He tells us who's to be involved. Remember, second person plural. You are to be involved. Respectively, individually, all are to be involved. Every last one is to be involved. And you say, well, wait a minute, Jim. Wasn't he just talking to the 11? I've heard that argument before. (laughs) And yes, he was talking to the 11, but what did he say to the 11? He said, you go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey and teaching them to obey, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all I commanded you. So he commanded the disciples to make or the apostles to make disciples, and he told them to teach us everything that he had commanded them. Thus, we are included in the command to make disciples. Somebody else said, well, but Jim, you know, how can you say that was just given to every individual Christian? You know, wasn't that given to the church? Well, wrong again. The church was not born until Acts chapter 2. This command was given back in the Gospels in the beginning of Acts before the church was ever born. Then I've heard the argument that, well, you know, the church was in the Old Testament. How can you say it was born in Acts chapter 2? Well, I don't know what kind of exegetical gymnastics you have to do to say that the church was in the Old Testament. It wasn't. It wasn't. The Old Testament saints never saw the period where Israel would reject the Messiah. They saw a kingdom. I mean, all of the Old Testament prophets prophesied about the coming kingdom. They saw a kingdom. But what they did not see, they did not see the rejection. Read it for yourself in Romans chapters 9 and 10. They never saw the rejection of Israel, uh, or the rejection of the Messiah by Israel. They never saw that. They never saw the time when Jew and Gentile would be one in the body of Christ. Some of them probably wouldn't have wanted to participate. Because there was great hatred between the Jews and the Gentiles. Great hatred. They considered the Gentiles dogs. They never saw that in the Old Testament. You'll say, well, but some of the metaphors in the Old Testament for the church are used in the New Testament also. So that that proves that point. No, it doesn't. There are some of the metaphors. Israel was seen as a bride. Israel was seen as a vine. There are some of the metaphors used that are synonymous, but the one key metaphor that is not used, never seen in the Old Testament, is that of a body. A body with Jesus Christ as the head. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6 calls it a mystery. The church was a mystery to the Old Testament. A mystery. Yes, God promised a kingdom. Jesus came. The king came, offered Israel the king, they, the kingdom. They rejected the king, so God set the kingdom aside. And that's the age we're living in right now. Jesus Christ indeed will reign as an earthly king in the millennial age. There are those that don't believe that. I don't know how you get rid of the promises that God has made that haven't been fulfilled. I don't know how you do that. that's not safe or fair with the Word of God. But a lot of people believe that, you know, God's not concerned with that. That's not going to happen. That's not what the Bible says. God made promises that will yet be fulfilled. But we're living in that mystery age right now, and that's exactly what Paul calls it in Ephesians 
Three, the mystery age of the kingdom. The king is not reigning externally right now. He's reigning internally in the hearts and lives of his people. That's what's going on today. Until Jesus comes again and will indeed set up an earthly kingdom. So the church was not in the Old Testament. They never saw this period. You know, the rapture the rapture's not in the Old Testament. That's our exit. It was never seen. None of that was ever seen by Old Testament saints. We are living in an incredible time when God has blessed us with revelation that the Old Testament writers who actually wrote Scripture knew nothing about. And he has privileged us to know these things. So the church was not in the Old Testament. The church was not in the Gospels. Some people say, well, you know, in Matthew 16, when Jesus said, I'll build my church, that was the birthday of the church. Again, I don't know what kind of exegetical gymnastics you have to go through to try and make that fit. It doesn't fit. It was not. That was not the birthday of the church. The birthday of the church was in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came and baptized all believers into the body of Christ, forming Jew and Gentile into one body and making us one in him with Christ as the head. That was the birthday of the church. And so the command was given to individuals. That's the point here. It's given to individuals. And you and I are included. Okay, so who is to be involved? That's a question. Talk back to me. Who's, who is to be involved in this? Everybody. Or who? Me. Because see, what, what is everybody's responsibility becomes no one's responsibility. If I said, man, everybody, I'm thirsty. Would you get me a drink? And I am. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> she knows me. Uh, I talk a lot. But... <laughs> And, and everybody would just sit, waiting for somebody else to do it. But if I said, Ramona, get me a drink, she's on the way to get a drink. You see, what is everybody's responsibility becomes no one's responsibility. And so we are to take individual responsibility for being involved with this. Thanks, darling. Love that girl. <laughs> Everyone is to be involved, yes, and indeed, I am to be involved. Now, secondly, what are we to do? What are we to do? Our text answers that question. Matthew 28, 19a says, we're to make disciples. We are to make disciples. That's the Savior strategy, is to make disciples. We are not commanded to make converts. Say, what? Is he talking against evangelism? Heresy! No, I'm not speaking against evangelism. You can't make disciples without making converts. You just necessarily will make converts. You necessarily will share the gospel of Jesus Christ with anything that moves that he gives you opportunity to do so. You'll do that. You'll be planting seeds and looking for opportunities. Every person you meet, you want to know, wonder if that person knows my Lord. Could it be that that person knows my Lord? I mean, when I'm hanging out with that guy that gave testimony this morning, one of the things that one of our tactics is, is to talk about how we're brothers. And that immediately wakes the lost man up. <laughs> we have his attention then. I said, well, I'm just tall, taller and darker. We're like puppies. 
and that gets their attention. <laughs> and then when we really have them sitting on the edge of their seat wanting to hear this story, we tell them how we're brothers. <laughs> okay, just one of those little things that just kind of comes into the natural flow of things while we're doing business and just having a large time doing it, but planting those seeds and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're not told, we're not commanded to make missionaries. Say what? No, we're not commanded to make missionaries. We're not told to make pastors. We're not told to make elders or deacons or choir members. We're told to make disciples because, you see, all those other things will be taken care of. God will take care of that. He didn't tell us to build the church. He clearly said it himself. He said, I will build my church. You keep your hands off my job. I'll do that. You do this. I've got a job for you that'll eat you alive. You do this, <laughs> and I'll take care of the rest. We're to make disciples. Making converts is wonderful. It is a wonderful thing, but converts grow old in the Lord. Disciples grow up in the Lord and start reproducing, you see. I mean, we have in the institution today, the institution of church across the world, we have many people that are simply just converts. They've been converts for 20 years, and they've never matured enough to reproduce at all. Truth of the matter is, babies just don't reproduce. They have all the equipment, <laughs> but it's not mature. Babies don't reproduce. And we are commanded to make disciples, which means we have to grow up in the Lord as we are discipled. And indeed, God has favored us in this church with everything necessary to do that. Everything necessary to do that. We are so blessed with such biblical expository, line upon line, precept upon precept, teaching and preaching. We're blessed immensely with that. Man, don't take that for granted. We were in China recently, my bubbling brown sugar and I, and uh, you know, one of the things that, that the Chinese Christians, some of the college students that we were training, uh, focused on was you know, they have a problem with, with the preaching that they're getting and the teaching that they're getting. It just has no, no great depth or substance to it at all. And, and because of their culture, I suspect it's a result of their cultural influence, what is majored on always is the severity of God, the strictness of God, the sternness of God, never the love of God. I mean, they were blown away to hear what the Bible has to say about the love of God. We take that for granted. We take it for granted. I mean, they were literally blown away by that. You mean God actually loves us? He, I mean, this isn't just a strict... He's not waiting for an opportunity to thrust us with, uh, and strike us with His judgment when we fail Him? You mean he, he, He'll welcome me back? And they, they were just blown away by that concept. Something that we, we take for granted. So we are to make disciples, to make disciples. And you see a reference there, Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 11, and we won't turn to it. It's, uh, Isaiah is a microcosm of your entire Bible. Your Bible has 66 books. Isaiah has 66 chapters. The first 39 books of the Bible focus on Old Testament truths with bright gleams of Jesus sprinkled all through there. Uh, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah the same way. 
The final 27 chapters of Isaiah are high profile on Jesus, like the final 27 uh, books of your Bible. And Isaiah 50 is right at the heart of that in what they call the suffering servant passages. And there it's high profile on Jesus. And you find Jesus speaking there 750 years before he ever came to earth. And he's speaking about discipleship. Discipleship was very, very important to our Lord. Very important. That's why he commanded us to make disciples. Now, what's Satan's subtle substitute at this point? To build ourselves, to hone ourselves, you know, and polish and just try to be a good Christian. Just try to be a good Christian. You know, Jesus is not interested in the least bit in you trying to make yourself a good Christian. He's not. Because you can't. You can't do it. Only the Holy Spirit can do that as you're exposed to the Word of God. He takes that truth and He hones you into what He wants you to be. But He's not interested in you turning in on yourself and saying, well, I just got to improve myself. You know, I just got to make myself a good Christian. You know, I mean, that's the Joel Osteen method of Christianity. Say, what? Did he say that? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That guy's not a preacher. He's a motivational speaker. <laughs> There's a big difference between the two. If you don't believe it, listen to him. It's all about self improvement. All about self improvement. You say, but Jim, aren't you being judgmental? No, I am holding up what I see against the Word of God. And I'm commanded to do that, and so are you. Every last one of us is commanded to do that. The filter is not to be my mind, the filter is to be the Word of God. And if you put it through that filter and it doesn't work, then you have a responsibility to step away from that. (laughs) That's not what God said at all. Sounds good, man. He's got thousands in there tickling their ears. (laughs) I think Paul wrote something about that. Or we take it on that our job is to build the church. Our job is not to build the church. Jesus will do that. You build disciples... And, and we'll have to knock out that wall. It, it, won't, it won't contain us. It just won't. Or we, we get into any other substitute concentration rather than the main thing. So who is to do this? Who is to do this? I am. I am. I am. What are we to do? Make disciples. Make disciples. All right, when are we to do this? Verse 19 tells us that too. The word go, and you can't see this in in just a pure English translation, but the word go is actually an I-N-G word, a a participle. It's better translated going, going. It's a present circumstantial participle. As you are, while you are, since you are going, this is what I want you to do. And it is not a command. It modifies the command, but it's not a command. There are four verb forms in the commission, and only one is a command, and that is the command to make disciples. The other mo- others modify that, telling us how to do that. So we are not commanded to go, but it modifies the command. And it's better translated going. As you are going, make disciples. You see, when we dismiss here in a few minutes, 
What will you be doing? You'll be going. Be going. You see, Jesus would never be so stupid as to command us to do something we're already doing. This is to be a lifestyle. He said, as you are going, while you are going, since you are going. You see that word go, you can translate that into Greek, Ugaritic, Syriac, Aramaic, and it still means the same thing. Go. It's a synonym for don't stay. It is God's way of saying, break the huddle. You see, you don't go to a Penn State game or to an Eagles game or to a Steelers game or any football game to watch the team huddle. No. You want to see them get out of the huddle and into the game. And go is God's way of saying, break the huddle. Get into the game. You see, we get into our holy huddles and we recite chalk talk and You know, we map strategies, and we pray about reaching the lost, and we meditate on reaching the lost, and a lot of times it stops there. We break the huddle, but we don't get into the game. This is God's way of saying, break the huddle and get into the game. As you are going, while you are going, since you are going, this is what I want you to do. That's the Savior strategy. This is to be a lifestyle. And it will impact every decision you make. It literally will impact every decision you make. It will impact your resources. I say, wait a minute, Jim. That, now you, you're way out of bounds. That's my money. <laughs> I determine what happens with that. No, you don't. No, you don't. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. And you're his too. Now, what's Satan's subtle substitute at this point? Compartmentalize your Christianity. Yeah, I'll go at 9.30 on Sunday morning. I'll make sure I'm promptly there at 9.30, and I'll have my Bible under my arm, or sometimes I won't. Because I'm doing God a favor by showing up, right? I'm showing love for him because I came there, because I included it in my daytimer. Oh, we have PDAs today, don't we? In my PDA. (laughs) I included that. I mean, I made time for him, you know. So, I I mean, I've expressed love to him simply by showing up there, you know. But I need all this other time for me. You know, I don't have time to sit and counsel with somebody for two hours from God's Word, and I don't have time to sit down across from my dining room table and and, and intentionally meet with somebody for an hour a week. I don't have time. You know, I've got all this other stuff. That, I mean, I've got a life, man. <laughs> life moves on, and I've got to be part of that. But I'm showing my love for him because I show up on Sunday morning at 930. You know, and I look good to all the other Christians. I do. I look just like them. It's wonderful. <laughs> that is not at all what God intended. Not at all. Not even a little bit. Compartmentalized Christianity happens all the time. I was talking to a brother the other day. I said, do you have a daily quiet time where you spend one-on-one with the Lord just so you can talk to him and he can talk to you through his word, meditation, et cetera, et cetera? And he said, well, I read my daily bread every day. I said, that's a wonderful start. But back to my question. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's not enough. You know, I got to know my bubbling brown sugar by spending time with her. Spending time with her. I wasn't content just to read about her. 
or to hear about her from somebody else. I got to know her by spending time with her. That is the same way we get intimate with the Lord, is by spending time with Him. So who is to do this? I am. What are we to do? Make disciples. When? As you are going. Next, where? Where are we to make disciples? Our text answers that too. All nations. All nations. Literally in Greek, it's ta ethne, all ethnic groups. All people groups, if you will. And many of us have a wonderful opportunity to do that because the world has shrunk because of our modes of transportation today. God brings many of those nations right to our feet at our universities, exchange students, all those things. Brings them right to our feet. I mean, Jesus never traveled more than 90 miles from home. Yet, he's still making disciples today. How did he do that? Through the disciples that he made in their reproduction. So we have an incredible opportunity today because God brings many of them right to our feet, right to our toes. All nations, all nations. You see, distance does not make you more missionary. I want to say that again. Geographical distance does not make you more missionary. It does not. It really does not. If it were, go would be the command. But it's not. You see, the the frontier to be crossed is the frontier of gospel awareness. Do the people have an opportunity to hear, understand, and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, the world is to be on our heart. Our vision, if Jesus is the head, our vision is to match his. And we find in John 3.16, a verse that we're very familiar with, it says, for God so loved Camp Hill. Yeah? God so loved Mechanicsburg. Oh, Harrisburg. You see, if we can find our vision to only that area, our vision doesn't match God's. Not at all. It says, for God so loved the world. Didn't say, for God so loved the United States of America. You know, a lot of Americans think that there's an American flag draped over the throne of God. There's not. <laughs> there's not. I know that upsets some of you, but, it, you know, search, search the scriptures. It's not there. No, for God so loved the world. So if our vision is going to match his, the world has to be on our hearts just as it's on, it's on God's heart. Matthew 13, 38 tells us that the field that we, the seed, the children of God, are to be scattered in is the world. So that's our responsibility. We're to make disciples of all nations. And there's any number of ways to do that. You know, today, this body's involved in that. This Terry Zabulski is in Qatar. or in Dubai today. But today, this body is involved in that. The last couple of weeks, this body's been involved in that in China. This this body's involved in that in Cameroon, Africa, in Kenya, and any, I I don't want to go down the list of places that this body is involved in because members of this body are involved. It's a body. That right hand can't be involved without the rest of this body being involved. 
So you're involved in that even as we speak. And I want to urge you to pray for that. Pray for that, that the Lord would have His way. But the field is the world. That's where we're to make disciples of all nations, all ethnic groups. Now, Satan's subtle substitute is to localize your interest. You only see Camp Hill, Mechanicsburg, and maybe Harrisburg as your field that you are to share the gospel in. That's not true. That's not true. That's wonderful. You're supposed to have influence in that area. Absolutely. Absolutely, positively, we're supposed to make disciples in that area. Without question. I understand your disappointment, uh, your disappointment, sister, about not going to jail. <laughs> we go every week. It's fun. Uh, <laughs> and you want to be sharpened? You go to jail for a while. You'll be sharpened there because there's every kind of ism, schism, crank, crackpot, every kind of religion. I ran into a guy the other night that said he's, he wasn't a Muslim and he wasn't a Christian. He was a five percenter. Yeah. So I had to go find out what, what's a five percenter? What's that? <laughs> you got to know what it is if you're going to address it from God's word. I'd never heard that term. He's a five percenter. And, and he believed in Muhammad and Jesus. You know, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> you got to know what that is before you can take him to the scriptures and share the truth of God with him. So you want to be sharpened as a disciple. Um, yeah, get involved in some of that. That's, there's everything in there. I mean, literally everything. <laughs> great, great training ground. So we're told, who is to do it? I am. What? Make disciples. When? As I'm going. Where? All nations. All people groups. How? Number five, how are we to do this? The Savior strategy is given to us in verse 19b and verse 20, uh, by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. We've already covered going, so we won't, we won't go back for that, but baptizing, baptizing. You see, baptizing does not mean merely to get them wet. You know, I was baptized at an early age in, in a church that had some serious, serious doctrinal flaws. Serious, serious doctrinal flaws. I've spoken to my mother about that several times. Uh, nobody's immune, guys. Nobody's immune. <laughs> That's the word of God. <laughs> but they put a devil in the water and a wet devil came out. That's it. I had nothing but moisture. I was totally unsaved. I was simply doing what they said I had to do. But baptism is a testimony. It is a picture of what has happened to you spiritually. It is an outward expression of an inward spiritual reality that has happened to you. When you got saved, you were baptized in the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit, never by the Holy Spirit. That's an unbiblical term. It's never used. Never used. Jesus is the baptizer. The Holy Spirit is the element of baptism. And we were all submerged in the Holy Spirit the day we were saved. You don't get saved and then later you get the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 says that if man has not the Spirit of God, he's none of his. So you don't get saved first and then get the Holy Spirit. The moment you were saved, you were submerged in the element of the Spirit. Spiritually. It's not a feeling. Not a feeling. It's a fact. 
It's a fact of God. It is a truth that God has done this by his own choice, judiciously. He has placed you into the body of Christ through spiritual baptism at the moment you're saved. Water baptism is simply an outward expression of that spiritual truth. And it is a testimony. It is a testimony. Anytime there's a baptism, there's a testimony that that person is now denouncing his old life, death to his old life, risen to walk in the newness of Christ. And that is an outward expression. You see, typically, when you tell your family members you're going to be baptized, people want to show up for that. They may not know what it means, but they want to show up for that. And what that is, is that is a testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he's done in your life. So baptism is very, 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 very significant. It doesn't add to your salvation. You can be unbaptized and go to heaven. I point you to the thief on the cross. Jesus didn't say, when the man exercised faith, placed his faith in Christ, he didn't say, hey, John, James, Peter, get this man down and dunk him in water. He didn't do that. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. But the problem comes in, baptism is simply a matter of obedience, and if Satan can cause you to be disobedient at the beginning of your Christian life, then he can establish a pattern of disobedience all through your life. I was saved for many years before I was baptized. Nobody ever taught me that. Tragic. It's true. I had become a leader in the church and hadn't been baptized. And God convicted my heart at 5 a.m. one Saturday morning when I was having a discipling session with one of my disciples who's a, a Swatera Township cop. Uh, and that was, he was on a swing shift, and that was the only time he could meet. So we, meet, we met at 5 a.m. Saturday morning. Uh, to, to disciple him, and it was on my heart that day to teach about baptism, and God convicted me just mightily, just trashed me. <laughs> and I'm glad he did. I called up my best male friend on earth, Soup Campbell, in Memphis, and said, hey, next week we're going to be out there at Kids Across America, the uh, Christian sports camp that's geared toward inner, inner city youth. We're going to be out there training the staff uh, my family's going to be out there with me because Ramona's involved in some of the training and Jamie's going to be one of the campers. And I want you to baptize me there in the lake, Table Rock Lake, out, uh, outside Branson, up in the Ozarks. He said, well, who do you want there? I said, everybody that wants to be there. I want you to advertise it. I'm cool with that. Because it's important that those people see a spiritual leader being obedient to the Word of God has nothing to do with my pride. I don't have any of that. <laughs> I want them there to see the obedience and follow me in obedience. Where I'm not obedient, don't follow. But where I am, please get with that. <clears throat> so baptizing is more than simply getting them wet. It's a matter of obedience, and obedience brings blessings according to the Word of God. So we're to do this, how? By going, by baptizing, and by teaching. By teaching. Now, you'll say, but Jim, I don't have the spiritual gift of teaching. Well, that's okay. That's okay. Just because you don't have the gift of liberality, the gift of giving, are you not supposed to give? Hello? You say, hey, man, I don't have the gift of giving. I have the gift of receiving, so lay it on me. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, you're still to minister with blessing in those areas, even though you may not necessarily be spiritually gifted in that area. Absolutely, positively. And today is a wonderful day to be alive because there's all kinds of wonderful media out there to help you teach. And you may not be able to stand in front of a thousand people and speak. Most people can't. God hasn't given that to everybody. That's not the issue. You know, you may not be able to stand in front of five people and speak. I mean, I've got a guy that if there were more than two people in the room, he wouldn't be able to move his lips. But that guy is one of the greatest disciples I've ever seen in sitting down one-on-one and sharing with a less mature Christian or a new Christian, either one, what they know about the Christian life and the Word of God. He takes notes, copious notes, on everything he hears, every sermon that he hears at his church, and he simply goes back that week and teaches that to that guy because that's what his pastor taught him that week. He takes notes when we sit down, and then he leaves there, goes home and masters that, and as soon as possible, he goes and gets that guy and starts teaching him that. That's what it's about. You don't have to have the gift of teaching. Everybody doesn't have that. And that's why not, that's not what Jesus is saying here. You simply teach, pass on exactly what was passed on to you that the Word of God has spoken So how are we to do this? By going, by baptizing, and by teaching. Finally, why? Why are we to do this? Well, the Great Commission doesn't begin in verse 19 where we started. Actually begins in verse 18. So I want you to back up to Matthew 28, 18. Let's read that. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Therefore, therefore. See, when you see that word therefore, you have to find out what it's there for, because it's there for a reason. And it always refers back to something that went before. And what we have here tells us why we are to make disciples. It's because of the Lordship of Christ. The Lordship of Christ. He said, I am the one who is in control. All authority in heaven and in earth, the spiritual realm and the physical realm, all authority has been given into me. Therefore, I want you to go and make disciples. So making disciples is based on the lordship of Jesus Christ. The lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is not a constitutional monarch. He's not. Not a constitutional monarch. You know something about the government of Great Britain. They're one of our allies. They have a queen, Elizabeth. Is she the woman who runs that country? No. No. The prime minister is the person that runs that country. And in British government, when the... Parliament, who elects the prime minister, passes a law to tell the citizens of Great Britain what they can and cannot do. They take that law and they send it over to the queen in deference to her as the queen. And they have a a line at the bottom for her signature, asking her, in deference to her, to sign approving that law. 
What happens if she doesn't sign it, if she refuses to sign it? What happens? It's still a law. Because she's a constitutional monarch. She has no power, yet she is honored and revered as the leader of Great Britain. I mean, they spend a lot of money to honor her. A lot of money. <laughs> you know, I mean, you see her sometime, the digs she comes out in, man. With all, she's just dripping in all kinds of stuff that we don't know anything about. <laughs> Diamonds and precious stones. They spend a lot of money. She has a security detail better than Bush. <laughs> I mean, they spend a lot of money to honor her. And they send that over to her for her to sign. And if she doesn't sign, it's still a law. Because she's a figurehead, constitutional monarch. Jesus Christ is not a constitutional monarch. He's not. A lot of us treat him like he is. And we gather together with other Christians and we sing, For he is Lord, he is Lord. And you know what? We get a hand up. He is risen from the dead and he is Lord. But what we really mean, he's my king. But I'm his prime minister. I decide where I'm going to go. I decide how much I'm going to give. I decide what it, I'm going to do. We do that. And, you know, we get before the Lord with, with our plan, you know, our plan, and, and we have a place for him to sign. And we say, Lord, here is what I, Jim, would like to do, but I would never do any of this without asking you to come along. Bless it all. <laughs> And, you know, he says, well, I want, I want to go to, I'm going to finish high school, I want to go to college, want to uh, find a good church like Grace, you know, and, uh, and we're going to give, you know, it's tough, but, but you know, we're going to give, and, uh, you know, if they ask us to get involved in uh, in the youth ministry, we, you know, we might make a few cookies. You know, it's all good. Hey, we're contributing, man. <laughs> and, you know, if they want to take a missions trip, you know, like to Acapulco or somewhere like that, <laughs> you know, we'll get involved in that. Hey, man, that's cool. We can see a few cool things while we're there, you know. Did anything on that list necessarily sound bad? No. No. But hear this carefully. The greatest enemy of the best is not the worst. It's the good. I want to say that again because I don't want it to escape you or you it. The greatest enemy of the best is never the worst. It's the good. You won't settle for the worst as a believer, but you will settle for the good. Say, hey, I, I'm in there, man. It's good. And we take that list before the Lord and say, Lord, here's what I, I, Ron Spain, would like to do. And the Lord says, hmm. Well, Ron, I have a list for you. And he looks at the list and says, Lord, there's only one problem. The page is blank. He says, yeah, I just want you to sign. But Lord, you know, my mom always taught me never to sign anything without reading it first. 
say, yeah, just, just want you to sign. As Lord, can we talk before we get to this signing thing? <laughs> Lord, what if you put on my page, single, you know, not married, just want you to sign. Lord, what if you put on my page, missionary, Ooh. just want you to sign. Lord, what if you put on my page, inner city, want you to sign. Lord, what if you put on my page poverty, you know, living day to day, no equity, no security. So I just want you to sign. You see, Jesus Christ is not a constitutional monarch. He is not. He's an absolute monarch. There is one in this kingdom who is the king, and all who claim to be his followers and subjects obey. The message of the Old Testament is there is one God and no runner-up. He is Lord of every area of your life. If you have a problem giving more, praying more, going more, witnessing more, your problem is not with missions. Your problem is not with making disciples. Your problem is lordship. That's where it all starts. That's where it all starts. You know, I, I, I saw this debate in the last few years, and, and some of you know what I'm talking about, over lordship salvation. How could that ever be a debate? You know, Terry and I talked about this. How on earth could that ever be a debate? In other words, those that, that are pushing this say, well, you know, you can be saved uh, and not submit to Jesus' lordship. I don't know how you do that. I, I don't see that in the book. Lordship salvation. He is Lord of all or not Lord at all. No exceptions. He's Lord of your time. He's Lord of your money. He's Lord of all your resources. Your wife, your children, your husband all belong to him. You simply get to be a steward. They're on loan to you. And at any time, he can decide to take that back. At any second, he can decide to take that back. And if you don't manage it properly, he just may. I don't make that any argument. But he can. His choice. He's Lord. Shall the potter say to the clay, or the clay say to the potter, why have you done this? Why have you made me this way? No. Jesus Christ is not a constitutional monarch. Some of us need to get before the Lord in our quiet time and take our list and rip it into a thousand pieces. And then get in your heart and take the blank page from the hand of the Lord and sign it. And in so doing, say, yes, Lord. Lord, the answer is yes. Now what's the question? <laughs> Jesus Christ and his lordship must dominate our lives. What's Satan's subtle cons uh, substitute at this point? is to treat him just like he's a constitutional monarch, to compartmentalize him in our lives. 
to proclaim that he's our king and subtly act as his prime minister. And you see, it's so wonderful because at the end of verse 20, he promises, he promises. He's a God that can't lie. He promises to attend your ministry personally as you live to obey this command. He said, lo, I am with you even to the end of the age, the eschaton, the last fragment of humanity. I'm with you. He's right there with you every step, providing the resources you need, providing everything that you need to obey his command. He's there. I wish I had time to tell you the dozens and dozens and dozens of stories about how he has shown up powerfully, powerfully in the ministry that he has given me where I had no idea how it was going to work. Me and one of my disciples were to go to Mozambique one year to train a group of pastors, and two weeks before the time to depart, we had no money for the tickets. It was 3000 bucks. Well, Jim ain't got that kind of resources. Trust me. Do we have that? No. Uh, <laughs> it's 3000 bucks, And I knew in my heart God wanted us there. He calls me up. He said, Jim, he said, what are we going to do? I said, well, we're going to talk to the Lord and we're going to talk to his people. You know, that's, that's the only thing I know to do because he knows we can't walk across the Atlantic and we're going to need a ride. So if he wants us there, we're trained and equipped. If he wants us there, he'll make a way. Well, <clears throat> a brother who has the gift of liberality called me from Memphis and said, Hey, Brother Jim, aren't you supposed to be going to Mozambique sometime soon? I said, I am. He said, uh, how you fix for cheese? Now, let me translate that. <laughs> In the hood, <laughs> let me translate that. In the African-American community. <laughs> okay. Cheese is money. So if you ever hear anybody say, man, break me off some of that cheddar, you know they want some money. <laughs> okay. I said, man, I ain't got no cheese. <laughs> I said, we have no cheese, brother, none. He said, um, how much does it cost? I said, 3000 bucks. We don't have that. He said, so if I send you $3,000, you can get there. He said, but we want you to come back. <laughs> so you'll need a little bit more. He said, how about I send you a check for 3500 bucks?" And I said, uh, praise the Lord, brother. That'd be wonderful. That would just be wonderful. That's an answer to prayer. I said, but could you do this? Could you take $3,000 down on uh, out to Bartlett, because that's where my travel agent is, right there by you, and give that to her because I ain't paid her, and, and she needs paid, and just send us the other five. So he did. I called my brother, my disciple, and said, hey, Mac, we got tickets, man. The Lord has provided. We got a ride. We can get there. There's only one thing. He said, what's that? I said, we need shots, because you haven't had your shots to go into Mozambique, and they got some ugly stuff there. You know, we're to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So we're going to be wise, and we're going to take his 500 bucks and go get the shots. <laughs> okay. He said, then what are we going to do for expenses? I said, ah, the Lord will provide. I don't know. I said, I think I got a couple hundred bucks <laughs> you know, to go to Mozambique. And uh, 
So we went and got the shots. The morning we were to leave, another one of the guys I've trained in ministry was going to take us to Philadelphia to fly out. That morning, a sister called him. I had been teaching in a local church. I won't call the name or you'd recognize it. I'd been teaching in a local church for some time and on Wednesday nights, and there was a woman there. Her and her husband had been attending that teaching, and apparently the Lord had blessed their lives by that. And she called up the guy that was going to take us to the airport and said, look, my husband and I want to give Jim a gift to help him on his way to Mozambique, and we don't know where he lives. He said, cool, meet me. You can follow me over. I'm taking him to the, to the airport. So she did, and she came in, and we stood there in the vestibule of, of, of my home, and she was telling me how she had been a Christian for 20 years, her and her husband, and, and how they'd never been trained and equipped and discipled, and how much they had been blessed in the past few weeks by that Wednesday night teaching, and they just wanted to give us a gift to help us along our way in that ministry, and they knew we wouldn't have time to go to the bank that day, so they put cash in an envelope. And I thanked her, and we prayed. She's standing there with tears flowing down, and we prayed, and she left, and I said, well, men, let's go get the luggage and, and load up. And I said, by the way, let's just see what the Lord has provided here. And I opened that envelope, and there was eight $100 bills. So now we had expense money to go to Mozambique. That's only one of the dozens of stories I can tell you of how God can provide and will provide if he has something for you to do. Where God guides, he always provides. No exceptions. Always does. And he's promised to attend your ministry as you live to obey his command. He's promised that. What more security could we need? The great commission of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who, what, where, when, how, and why. The commission answers all those questions. Can we stand? <clears throat> if you have your notes from last week, where Brother Mark preached, and you compare them with your notes for today, you'll find that God has harmonized that I had no idea what Mark was going to preach. He had no idea what I was going to preach. But that's kind of the way the Lord works. He just kind of works it out. So I encourage you to go back and lay those side by side and study those.